Professor Dershowitz, I appreciate you sitting down with me. Thank you so much. Well, I love teaching and I love to help anybody use teaching, whether they be teachers or students. So thanks for inviting me. Now, it turns out we're from the same place. You were born in Brooklyn. I'm a transplant. Uh, we both went to Brooklyn College, but then our paths diverged because you went to Yale. And with some of my scores, I probably wouldn't be able to have lunch at Yale. You went the academic route, uh, never into private practice full time. Why is that? Well, I always wanted to do many things at the same time, and being a practitioner is, is full-time. So uh, by being a professor, I could be a professor, a full-time writer, a full-time litigator, uh, a full-time public intellectual, and a full-time you know, pain in the rear to people who uh, uh, don't approve of what I have to say. So I love the idea of having multiple careers, and being a professor is... Um, is um, a, a way to do that. And why appellate work? Uh, was that just more academic or because I am certain you're more than capable of doing anything, but uh, appellate work is certainly more uh, academic and theoretical at least. No, it has nothing to do with that at all. I only did appellate work because that fit in with my teaching schedule. I couldn't take two weeks to do a trial. I'd love to be a trial lawyer. I've done a couple of trials and I've done them uh, fairly well, and um, um, I'd be happy to do another trial before I'm gone. But um, uh, appellate work allows you to just write your brief on your schedule and then be in court on a given day. And I remember, I think correctly, that I've never canceled a class because of an appeal. I always manage to tell the court what my teaching schedule is, and they always fit in my teaching schedule. I had one judge who quite deliberately, a federal judge in New Jersey, saw my teaching schedule and scheduled every hearing on a day I was teaching. And um, I objected to that and finally he gave in. Now, you mentioned you did trials. You are known primarily as a criminal lawyer. I know you do civil work as well. Um, you wrote an article a little while ago about the role of the criminal defense lawyer and the role of the lawyer in general mentioning Donald Trump, how he's having some difficulty yeah. uh, trying to find lawyers. Now, look, yeah. you've represented folks that certain sectors of society would deem objectionable. So have I. Uh, yeah. I think we all have. I find, them, I find them objectionable, too. Yeah. Just like doctors find some of their patients objectionable. Why is it important to allow criminal defense lawyers or lawyers in general that freedom to represent folks deemed by some objectionable? Well, it's more than allow. We should be encouraging that. We should all live by the traditions of uh, John Adams, who represented the Britishers who accused of the Boston massacre. Um, if you want to see what a system looks like uh, when defendants are not able to get good lawyers, uh, just go to Iran, go to Syria, go to Cuba, go to Russia, go to China. I know I litigated cases in uh, the former Soviet uh, Union. It's extremely important for the public to understand that the Constitution not only allows, but uh, encourages lawyers to represent the most despised. Let me tell you who the worst villains are here. And that is the big law firms. Uh, the big law firms pick and choose. I, I'm, now I know about a law firm that's representing terrorists and countries that support terrorism, but they wouldn't go near a Me Too case because they're terrified that some of their clients and some of their young lawyers will quit 
if you um, uh, represent somebody who is accused even falsely of uh, a sexual misconduct. So, you know, law firms pick and choose and, and they, the one attribute that you don't expect a law firm to have is courage or principle. They're just there for the money. So the hypocrisy of uh, practicing lawyers today is, is, is what undercuts the credibility of the bar. I mean, when I represent uh, very, very unpopular people, people turn to me and say, but this law firm turned down this case. This law firm turned down this case. Yeah, they did it for money. They turned down a case because they were afraid of losing money. I don't know of law firms today that um, uh, make decisions based purely on principle the way I try to do. And now part of this, I guess, perhaps uh, is attributable to the media, perhaps social media, which is an extension, I suppose, of the media. And when we talk about the media and your career, uh, we should, I suppose, because people will kill me if I don't, talk about O.J. Simpson. I spoke to Lee Bailey about this many years ago, and he had indicated to me, and he knew something about trying a murder case, and he told me how much of a circus that case was and this whole notion of a dream team, which was effectively a fiction. Um, what is your opinion on dream teams and their effectiveness on a case to the extent well, that they happen, which is infrequently? Well, the uh, defense team in the O.J. Simpson case was a nightmare, not a dream. Um, most of the lawyers didn't get along. They were fighting with each other. I think I was the only lawyer on the team that everybody got along with because I was really at a distance. Um, and, uh, you know, it's uh, the O.J. Simpson case. When I first took the case, people praised me. They, oh, my God, that's so important. You're taking a case of somebody who might face the death penalty, uh, who's probably guilty, but he's entitled to a defense. And then we made the terrible, terrible mistake of winning. And when we won the case, people began to hate us. One of my colleagues' wives came over to me and said, winning that case was like me getting a kick in the stomach. I said, do you even know the people involved? Do you have any idea? No, but I know he's guilty. And you shouldn't have defended somebody and won the case. If I had lost the case, it would have been fine. But I don't lose cases. I win cases. I have won the overwhelming majority of my life and death cases, cases involving homicide, attempted homicide, assault. Those are the cases I've specialized in over the years. And I generally use science to win these cases. But fortunately for my clients, I've rarely, rarely lost a case involving life and death. And when I do lose such a case, I don't give up until we either win or the person is dead. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a very dogged and determined lawyer and I never quit. Do you think it's important for the public, and in that case, that was a glaring example, to have a view into how the courtroom works? Or does a case like that uh, which was certainly different than many murder cases or trials in general. Does a case like that skew the perception of the public? Is it a negative thing or is it a positive thing? No, I think it's a positive thing. I think people should see as much as they can about how the system works. There was a poll, I think, that was conducted saying people who watched the O.J. Simpson case on television were not surprised by the verdict, but people who read about it through the filter of the media saw just television excerpts were shocked. So people and that touches on the First Amendment. Now, you've been a First Amendment guy from Harry Reams to Julian right. Assange. Uh, there are folks out there, and I teach the First Amendment at length uh, in my constitutional law class. I think it's, it's 
obviously big. Why do some folks say that it's under attack? Do you believe that? What can we do to fix it? Well, it's not only under attack. It's uh, largely being ignored. For the first time in my adult life, there are professors at law schools around the country today saying the First Amendment uh, should be abolished, that it's a patriarchal, colonialist, white supremacist notion that we don't need dissent. We know what's right. If you know the truth, capital T, capital T, why do you need dissenting opinion? If you know that every man who's accused by a woman is guilty, what do you need due process? What do you need the Constitution? New York Times today has a, an editorial by somebody saying the Supreme Court should not have the power to declare statutes unconstitutional unless two thirds of the justices vote uh, for it. Uh, imagine that would do what would happen 20 or 30 years from now. Let's assume the Supreme Court becomes very liberal and the legislatures pass unconstitutional statutes, but people are prepared to tinker with the constitutional, particularly tinker with free speech. Let me be very clear about another thing. I support the First Amendment, you support the First Amendment. There are very, very few people who actually support the First Amendment. If you did an actual poll and people told the truth, they would say free speech for me, but not for thee. Everybody would have exceptions, which would completely obliterate the First Amendment. I used to do an experiment in my class. How many of you believe that everybody should have the right of free speech? Oh, every hand goes up. How about Holocaust deniers? Few hands go down. How about people who believe that uh, racial inferiority of certain groups? More hands uh, go down. How many believe that, uh, uh, you know, and then you go through the list of things. And by the time you're done, uh, the First Amendment protects only the most benign, uh, banal uh, uh, statements and, uh, you know, uh, the, the works of uh, the great framers of the Constitution. Even they wouldn't be protected by some people's views of, of the First Amendment. So, uh, and that's on the left and on the right. People on the left don't believe that uh, racists and uh, uh, extremists on the right should have free speech, and people on 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 the left and right, you know, they they all want to pick and choose uh, what free speech is permitted. And when I support the free speech for everybody, which the ACLU does not do. Um, uh, I'm attacked and condemned. Uh, people believe that I support the people whose rights I support. Look, I've defended communists. I've defended Nazis. I've defended racists. I've defended sexists, uh, right of free speech. I've defended pornographers, uh, right of, of free speech. And I'll continue to do it. The First Amendment is wounded, seriously wounded. And um, there's nobody trying to keep it alive except for really a handful of people. Well, and it's interesting because when you talk about it, when you talk about the First Amendment, uh, particularly to students, and you shave away the exceptions, right? So you start with the rule, as you typically do in law school, and then you go through Schenck and Brandenburg, and you go through all the cases. Uh, really, what ends up happening is you have free speech all the time, unless there's some real direct link to harm to others. Well, that's, and, what, that's what's supposed to be. That's not what happens, because harm is defined as insult, upset. Look, the worst statement ever made about free speech was made by Oliver Wendell Holmes. When this smart man made the stupidest statement ever made about free speech, and he said, there is no free speech. The First Amendment doesn't cover somebody falsely shouting fire in the theater. The dumbest statement ever made by a smart man. Why? 
because shouting fire in a crowded theater, falsely shouting fire, is not speech. It's setting off an alarm. It is indistinguishable from pulling a lever. And so obviously the First Amendment doesn't protect somebody going up to a lever and pulling it when there's no fire. If he wanted to make a fair analogy, he would have, remember the case involved people standing in front of the draft, handing out leaflets, saying you shouldn't fight in World War I because it's corporate uh, greed. The analogy would not be shouting fire or falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater. It would be handing out leaflets in front of a theater saying, be careful about going into that theater because there may be a fire hazard inside. If that's protected speech, then what Schenck did and what others did was protected speech. But Holmes cheated uh, and he used a false analogy. Did he know he was using a false analogy? He sure did. He was smart enough. And of course, he took a lot of that back in later opinions after Brandeis uh, joined uh, the court. But, uh, you know, don't ever use that analogy, shouting fire in the theater. It's the most widely used, dumb, inept analogy ever done. And yet, whenever I talk about free speech, but it's like shouting fire. Everything's like shouting fire in the theater, except nothing's like shouting fire in the theater. Because shouting fire in the theater, falsely, is not speech. It doesn't appeal to the brain. It doesn't appeal to the emotion. It doesn't appeal. It appeals to the legs. Run. Get the hell out of there. Don't think about it. That's not what the First Amendment is designed to protect. The First Amendment is designed to protect ideas, thoughts, advocacy, not bell, bells ringing falsely. And it's designed to protect, in some cases, against wrongful criminal prosecutions. Uh, you've discussed recently about the grand jury process and about the execution of the search warrant in Mar-a-Lago and how certainly... Uh, this is indictable conduct, but should be balanced with prosecutorial discretion, due process. Why is it important to find that balance? Because indictments are so easy to come by, and uh, that should be something kept in mind. Look, as uh, the former chief judge of the New York Court of Appeals says, a grand jury will indict a ham sandwich if the prosecutor wants him to do it. My mother would approve of indicting a ham sandwich, but not a tuna sandwich. But today, a grand jury will indict a tuna sandwich. And uh, in the Mar-a-Lago situation, the, the committee of Congress consisting of seven anti-Trump Democrats and two anti-Trump Republicans, they would issue a subpoena to a ham sandwich uh, if it belonged to Donald Trump. So what we're seeing is in an attempt to get Trump to make sure he doesn't run for re-election, uh, liberals, people on the left, woke people, decent people, are prepared to compromise every single constitutional right because it's more important to stop Trump from running than to support our constitution. They remind me of the segregationists in the South who were prepared to ignore the 14th, 13th, 15th Amendment to the Constitution because they knew that segregation was God-given, it was designed by the Constitution, the framers uh, supported it, and they do anything to maintain a segregated community. They were wrong and the Get Trump people are wrong. I hope Trump does get the nomination for the Republican uh, Party because I want my right to vote against him for the third time. I don't want some court to take away my right to vote against him. Trump should be defeated in the marketplace of ideas. I take that back. I, I hope he doesn't get the nomination because a fair process would deny it to him. I hope he loses in the primaries. But I don't want some court 
or some committee of Congress telling me, if I'm a Republican, I happen to be a Democrat, so I don't vote in primaries with the Republican, but telling me that I can't vote for my choice of president. The Constitution says only four things about who can run for president. You have to be 35, he was 35. You have to be born in America, he was born in America. You have to have not fought in the Civil War against the North. And uh, you know, the, the, once those are satisfied, that's the end of the issue. Um, uh, if you want to amend the Constitution and say you have to be you know, a good person or a decent person or not having been indicted or not having been investigated, go ahead. But without amending the Constitution, you can't stop Trump from running by weaponizing the criminal justice system against him. Look, if he's guilty of crimes, he should be prosecuted. If Hunter Biden is guilty of crimes, he should be prosecuted. But I don't want to ever see what Stalin and Lavrenti Beria discussed come to America. Beria said to Stalin, show me the man and I'll find you the crime. And that's what's going on now. Um, they know the man, the man is Donald Trump, and they are searching. They're searching in Georgia. Maybe we'll find a crime there. They're searching New York City, uh, DA. Maybe we'll find a crime there. They're searching in New York State. Maybe we'll find a crime there. They're searching in Colorado. Maybe we'll find a car there. They're, they're searching on uh, uh, January 6th, what was, was terrible, what President Trump did and didn't do. But it wasn't a crime. It was protected by the Constitution under Brandenburg. But the goal is we know the man, Donald Trump, now find the crime. So Donald Trump will have done more harm to the Constitution, not by what he did, but by the fact that he made excuses. He gave excuses to people on the left, liberals, constitutional scholars. Let me give you another example. Uh, when I said that President Trump's speech uh, on January 6th was protected by the Constitution, hundreds of constitutional scholars said I was wrong that the speech was not protected by the Constitution. Every single one of them was dead wrong. The vast majority of them know it. And if the shoe were on the other foot, if uh, a candidate named Hillary Clinton or somebody else had made the exact same speech, these same phony scholars would have said it's protected speech. And so that's clear. The same thing was true when I defended Trump on the floor of the Senate. Of course it's correct that in order to be impeached, you have to commit treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And other high crimes and misdemeanors mean criminal type behavior akin to treason or bribery. That's what it means. That's what the framers said. That's why the framers rejected maladministration. That's why all through the 19th century, scholars and judges said you needed crime or criminal type behavior. But because it was Trump, all these phony scholars said, oh, no, we've done the research. They didn't do the research. They came to the conclusion first, and then they argue that because we're scholars, we're entitled to say what we think. And so all of them, the vast, vast majority, said that um, the, this, the House um, impeachment criteria were constitutional. President Trump's speech on the 6th was not constitutionally protected. None of them passed the shoe on the other foot test. They would virtually all of them come out the other way if it were a Democrat or a liberal or somebody they liked um, which had, who had made the speech on January 6th or who were being impeached for non-criminal conduct, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, clearly made up charges that would apply to 40 of our presidents. Now, 
you most recently represented uh, somebody named Mike Lindell in, in the right. uh, Fourth Amendment challenge That's uh, in right. this particular case. Now, the Fourth Amendment is filled with ambiguity and, and vague language, right? Yeah. And the derivatives of it are as well, reasonable suspicion, uh, you know, when applied to whether or not their phone records or wiretaps stop yeah. and frisk. Do you believe the problem is in the language or in the execution by law enforcement? Or well, the, the language is ambiguous, but let me be very clear. There are two independent Fourth Amendment rights. One of them, the framers intended. That is the Fourth Amendment, unlike the Fifth, Sixth, and Eighth Amendments, do not apply to criminal cases. The Fifth Amendment applies to criminal cases. The Sixth Amendment applies. The Eighth Amendment applies to criminal cases. The Fourth Amendment is about ordinary citizens, the right of the people to be secure. The right has nothing to do with criminal cases. In the early 1960s, the Supreme Court added an exclusionary rule to the Fourth Amendment, Mapp versus Ohio. That's what introduced, or the predecessor cases before that, the criminal element. And a lot of people confuse it. They think the Fourth Amendment applies only in criminal cases. And so the courts are saying Lindell doesn't get his cell phone back as he's interfering with an ongoing criminal investigation. And our argument is there are two separate rights that Lindell has. Let's assume Lindell had been given immunity. Let's assume, or the other hypothetical, let's assume he was dead. Dead people can't be prosecuted. That's the ultimate form of immunity, dying. You can't be prosecuted. But if they had searched his phone, his estate could still be seeking damages under Bivens. It could still be seeking to get the cell phone back. So the courts and academia, the courts are genuinely confused about the Fourth Amendment and academics are deliberately confusing. Um, part of me wishes I were back teaching after 50 years at Harvard because uh, nobody would agree with me in academia. There was an article which I was so proud of in I think the Chronicle of Higher Education saying I am on the periphery of academia because of my views. Thank you, I appreciate that. I am on the periphery. I sure- Now, last thing I wanna ask you about is due process. Uh, the presumption of innocence. And these are things you touched out uh, yeah. on as we did this interview. Why are they in my, well, I know why they are in my view. How important are they in your view to the administration of justice and the criminal justice system? And why should these two principles be at the forefront of all criminal justice debate, in my view, oh, anyway? Let, let me tell you what I was teaching my students for years and what I would tell every li listener. There is a very strong presumption in criminal cases, and it's a presumption of guilt. When a person is arrested, when a person is accused, everybody virtually believes he's guilty or she's guilty. And if you're a criminal defense lawyer, don't argue reasonable doubt. That's a losing argument. You can only convince a jury if you convince them that he's innocent. Their burden of proof is on you not on, oh, you'll get an instruction saying the burden of proof is on the prosecution. Nobody believes it. Uh, better 10 guilty go free than one innocent be wrongly confined. Nonsense. The vast majority of jurors and academics believe better 10 innocent be wrongly convicted than one guilty person go free if that person is guilty of doing something against wokeness or against political correctness. So the presumption of innocence and due process are parchment preachments. They are just there to make us feel good. You know, the, the origin of better 10 guilty go free is in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. 
where Abraham has the chutzpah to argue uh, with God about the killing of the citizens of Saddam. What if there are only 50, 40, 30, 20? Ultimately, what if there are 10 innocent people, 10 righteous people? And God says, all right, for the sake of 10, I will save the city. And that is the beginning of what ultimately becomes Blackstone's formulation of better 10 guilty. That is the hypothetical unreality of what is actually going on. The reality is that if you're arrested, you're presumed guilty. If you're on trial, you're presumed guilty. And you as a defense lawyer have to overcome that presumption. Don't ever argue to a jury as if there is a presumption of innocence. It doesn't work. Professor Dershowitz, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, can you tell me a bit about what you're doing now, your most recent works, most recent books, and what you're spending your time on these days? Okay, so my most recent published book is called The Price of Principle, and it tells the story about how I was canceled um, as the result of defending President Trump and being falsely accused by a woman I never met, never heard of, and whose lawyer admitted that she was wrong, simply wrong. Now, everybody now knows that I never met this woman, but it doesn't matter because I was accused. So I wrote a book about that. My next book, which is about to be published, uh, is called, we're not sure of the title yet. My title is Who Shall Live and Who Shall Die? The Role of the Law in Making Death and Life Decisions. Uh, my publisher wants to call it Dershowitz on Killing, Who Shall Live and Who Shall Die? But it's about abortion, about uh, death penalty, about assisted suicide, about uh, organ donations, about Ukraine, about every issue that the law faces involving tragic choices of life and death. And is death really different? Does the law treat death really differently the way justice is absurd? So that's um, my, my, my newest book. I'm also working on a book called Get Trump, how the attempt to prevent Trump from running has compromised civil liberties. And then I'm beginning to write a book about religion with a provocative title. Uh, why I pray like an Orthodox Jew, think like an agnostic, and behave like an atheist. So those are my three projects. I'm 84 years old. I should be retired, but I'm working harder than ever, and I'm doing it for myself, mostly writing. I'm consulting on a few cases. Most of my work, as it has always been over my entire life, is pro bono. And, um, you know, I enjoy. I enjoy consulting, advising, teaching having interviews like this with a, a thoughtful guy like you. Professor, thank you so much once again. I appreciate your time. Thank you.